Okay, guys, welcome to lesson number five of Bible 101. I'm excited for tonight because we are starting in the New Testament. And I don't know if we're going to make it through the entire New Testament, but I'm going to try my best. A uh, couple of announcements. First of all, if you have offerings at the end of the lesson, if you could just bring it up here to this bucket. Um, obviously, we haven't been taking up offering like usual, so please remember to either do that or remember to either do that or give online. Um, does anyone have any prayer requests before we get started? No. All right. Well, without further ado, let's go to God in prayer that he would have his will and have his way in this lesson. I believe that God is going to do something great through these next couple of lessons, um, and I'm praying that he would just have his way and have his will in them. God, we love you tonight. We thank you for everything you've done. God, we thank you <coughs> for the sacrifice you made of yourself. Lord, we thank you of the power that we've been given through the Holy Ghost, and I ask right now that that power that you gave us would begin to manifest itself in this house right now as these lessons go forth. God, as we begin to speak and talk about your, the Gospels, as we begin to talk about the Holy Ghost being poured out for the very first time on the very first church, God, I pray that that same Holy Ghost that was poured out on the day of Pentecost would fall in this place. I pray that revelation, divine revelation and understanding would go forth and that it would enter the hearts and the minds of every single person in this building. I pray, God, that you would just use this opportunity to teach us to give us better understanding of who you are and what your desire for us is. God, empower us, preserve us, and we will be careful to give you all the glory, all the honor, and all of the praise in Jesus' name. <clears throat> so, we are going to start with Matthew because Matthew is the first book in the New Testament and it only makes sense to start with the first book in the New Testament. What did you ask? What did Matthew do before he became a disciple? Anybody besides Sister Ivy? Sister Ivy, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I did. Okay, so Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew wrote the book of Matthew, obviously. And his another name that Matthew went by was Levi. Kind of like the jeans some of you may be wearing right now. Um, it was written to Jewish Christians. Uh, Jewish not meaning the religious Jews, but the cultural Jews or the uh, race, maybe some would say, uh, of Jews that had been converted to Christians or were in the process of being converted to Christians. And it was written between 60 and 65 AD. And <coughs> Matthew speaks... Uh, about Jesus as the king of the Jews. That's going to be your second blank or your number B, letter B blank. The king of the Jews. So Matthew's gospel serves as, as an introduction to the entire New Testament. It is saturated with 130 references to the Hebrew scriptures, emphasizing that Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies and types of the Old Testament. Hebrew scriptures means the Old Testament for those of you that did not get that. <clears throat> the Gospel of Matthew is the most Jewish of all the Gospels. In its inspired pages, Jesus of Nazareth is presented as the 
king of the Jews. So it is a bridge from the Old Testament and to the New Testament. So the first section, chapter 1 through chapter 4, verse 25, is talking about the person of the king. Uh, Matthew's gospel opens with the genealogy of Jesus, traced all the way back through King David to Abraham, the forefather of the Jewish people. This emphasizes Jesus' Jewish identity and position as the royal son of David. If you remember, it was prophesied that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David. <clears throat> this kingly emphasis is sustained throughout the book. Jesus was born in the, uh, to the Virgin Mary. John the Baptist prepared the way for his coming. He resisted temptation and began his ministry by calling 12 disciples in Galilee. The proclamation of the king is the next thing that's discussed, chapter 5 through chapter 7, verses 29. Uh, most commentators recognize that Matthew arranged Jesus' sermon so readers could better follow what Jesus said about specific subjects. Matthew's gospel describes five extended teaching sessions, which are arranged in five major discourses. The Sermon on the Mount was possibly the most important and most remembered thing that happened in the book of Matthew in the gospels. Um, he spoke uh, in a con contrasting way as to what the Pharisees and scribes spoke. They spoke um, that you were righteous because you followed a law. But Jesus, he transcended the Pharisees and the scribes whenever he got to the heart of the matter. One of the Pharisees and scribes said that you should not commit adultery because it's a sin. Jesus said if you look upon a woman, if you lust upon her, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So who cares if you commit adultery in person? Because if you simply just look upon somebody, you've done it in your heart. So what Jesus was getting to in the Sermon on the Mount was he was getting to the heart of the matter. Whereas the law spoke to the physical attributes of what you did in your everyday life, he spoke to the heart of it. Why don't we do this? Why don't we dress certain ways? Why don't we commit adultery? Why don't we drink? Why don't we, why don't we do all of these things? It's because it's not just wrong physically, it's wrong in your heart. And that's what he spoke to <coughs> at the Sermon on the Mount. The power of the king is the next subject, uh, which is chapter 8 through chapter 12, verses 50. Uh, the sending of the twelve, Jesus' instructions to the twelve apostles helped them speak to Israel, but many of their principles are still applicable today. Jesus instructed all his disciples to pray that God would send more laborers into the harvest. And I want you to remember that's going to be kind of the beginning of the theme of what I'm talking about tonight, um, is more laborers in the harvest, and basically the job of the disciples. So the next uh, would be miracles. Matthew reports no fewer than 21 miracles, uh, though summary statements like Matthew chapter 8 and 16 show that Jesus performed far more miracles than the ones Matthew described. The next section is the parables of the kingdom, chapters 13, and verse 1 through 13 and 53. The parables of the kingdom relay many important principles. The sower teaches that certain differences between people will produce different responses when the gospel is preached. The wheat and the tares and the net show that some people will be included and some rejected when the kingdom comes. The hidden treasure and the peril show that the kingdom is more valuable than any and all other possessions you could ever have. The presentation of the king, chapter 13, verse 54 through 23, verses 20, uh, 39. 
Matthew's gospel reaches a climax at this point when Jesus presents himself at the synagogue, synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth and is rejected. Next, John the Baptist is beheaded. Prophecies of the King, chapter 24 through 25, verse 46. Having visited the temple one last time, Jesus predicted the temple would be destroyed stone by stone. His prophecy called the Olivet Discourse was literally fulfilled 40 years later when the Romans destroyed the temple in A.D. 70. Passion and Triumph of the King, chapter 26, verse 1 through 28, verse 20. Soon after Peter confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Jesus begins to point out uh, to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from elders, chief priests, and scribes, and ultimately be killed and raised on the third day. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus explained that his death would be a ransom or a payment so others could be free, a payment for your sins and your sins and my sins. When Jesus established the Lord's Supper, he taught that his blood would be shed for, uh, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. After his death and resurrection, Jesus appeared at his disciples to announce his royal authority. All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Uh, King James Version says all power has been given to me in heaven and in earth. He also promised to be with the disciples until the end of the age as they go to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, which we know is the Great Commission. In conclusion, Matthew's message is about King Jesus and the kingdom of heaven. The gospel describes the powerful and victorious role of King Jesus, as well as the standards, blessings, and the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of God. Matthew tells that Jesus uh, bought us with the sacrifice of his own life and his victory over death. Now, Jesus expects his followers to proclaim the gospel to the end of the age. Jesus taught his followers to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, showing that one day he will establish his kingdom. And if we haven't noticed throughout the past few weeks of this revival, every single message that has been preached has been about God's kingdom being established right here and right now. And every one of you taking that gospel that's established with his kingdom and spreading it to your friends, to your family, and to all that are far off as Peter says. Moving on to Brother John Mark. <clears throat> the book of Mark was written to Christian believers in Roman culture. It was written A.D. 65, and Mark is speaking about Jesus as the divine servant. Everything in Mark is about servanthood and how Jesus played that role in that. So your letter B is going to be the divine servant. The Gospel of Mark presents Jesus as the Son of God and the perfect servant of God. A slave's birth was unimportant, so Mark does not include the birth of, G of Jesus Christ. A slave is expected to rush from task to task and to do any job immediately. So a key word in Mark is immediate, and it is recorded many, many times. So the prologue speaks about the servant's identity. Chapter 1 uh, and 1 through verse 13. And then you go to the servant's word and works, the servant's journey to the cross, the servant's ministry and death in Jerusalem, and the servant's ultimate victory in his resurrection. So Mark's 
first chapter portrays Jesus' long Sabbath day ministry in Capernaum. He adopted hometown on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. First, Jesus became preaching, for he was first and foremost a preacher of the good news. Second, Jesus called four disciples to accompany him in full-time ministry. Third, Jesus cast a demon from a man in the synagogue in the middle of his sermon. Fourth, Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. And finally, way into the night, Jesus continued to heal all that came to the door of Peter's home. So I want to hone in on that very first thing that Jesus was, which was a preacher. Very first and foremost, Jesus was a preacher of the gospel. And I believe that just as Jesus was, God's intention and plan is for us to also be first and foremost a preacher of the gospel. <clears throat> Throughout his gospel, Mark presents more works of Jesus and fewer of his words. Mark's writing is action-packed, forceful, fresh, vivid, dramatic, realistic, graphic, simple, direct, swift, rough, brief, and to the point. That's a lot of adjectives, adverbs. I almost said adjectives, but those are all adverbs. Mark used the historical present tense more than... Uh, 150 times in six and in 673 verses uh, and was fond of using imperfect tense which describes continuous action in the past everything about mark is jesus going from place to place to place to place he didn't have time to rest he didn't have time he had a mission jesus's mighty works in mark include at least 18 separate miracles as well as places where he says he's headed, or where he has healed the multitudes. Two of Jesus' miracles are recorded in Mark and nowhere else. One is restoring the speech and the hearing to a deaf and dumb man in Dicopolis, and the other is the healing of the blind man uh, of Bethesda. Mark told about these miracles to show that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. Mark includes more personal details about Jesus than any other gospel. Mark is the only writer to mention that Jesus was a carpenter during his early adulthood. Mark shows Jesus' full humanity as well as his deity. In conclusion, Mark's goal was to present Jesus as the servant son of God. He dispenses with uh, any mention of Jesus' birth and childhood, and he rushes immediately to Jesus' miraculous work. Though Mark includes many teachings and several sermons of Christ, he specializes in what makes Jesus unique. Mark only indicates four parables Jesus told, but recounts nearly 20 miracles. Because unlike other preachers, whereas any preacher could give a parable, any preacher could tell a story, could preach a message, Jesus had the power from heaven to heal, to save, to deliver, and that's what Mark hones in on. <clears throat> uh, Brother Luke will be our next discussion, and he is speaking to Theophilus, and he is uh, Theophilus is an individual. For those of you that's wondering, while many of these other things have been written to nations or to a group of people, uh, Luke was written to an individual, and it was written A.D. sixty, and Luke is talking about Jesus as the Son of Man. That's going to be your letter B. Anybody know what Luke was before he was a disciple besides Ivy? Come on. What was Luke? Anybody? Luke was a physician. God needs to study. Dear boy. 
Luke was a medical doctor, a missionary, and an evangelist. He was a historian, a researcher, and a writer of the third gospel. Before any of those other things, he was a doctor. His account of Jesus' life and ministry emphasizes that he is the perfect Son of God and the Savior of all mankind. Luke has no narrow-mindedness, so his gospel shows that Jesus loves all, mingles with all, died for all, and calls all to be saved. We start off with a prologue in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Then he speaks on, uh, or the book of Luke speaks on Christ's presentation, baptism, and temptation. Uh, then it goes on to, in chapter 4, Christ's preaching and miracles. Then Christ's purian ministry and parables. I will explain that word here in just a minute. Um, Christ's passion, resurrection, and ascension. So uh, that's what it ends with is obviously the passion, the resurrection, and ascension. The Gospel of Luke is the most comprehensive, comprehensive of all four Gospels. It records events before Matthew's story of Mary and Joseph, reaching back to Gabriel's announcements to Zechariah and Mary. Luke is also the most universal Gospel because the good news about Jesus is for the whole world, mentioned many times, not just for Jews. Jesus' lineage is traced back not to just Abraham, but to Adam as well. The salvation he brings is a light of, for revelation to the Gentiles. Quoting from Isaiah, Isaiah, Luke reminds us of God's promise that everyone will see the salvation of God. <clears throat> there is neither Greek nor Jew. Uh, Luke references, references more historical events in the Roman Empire during the life of Jesus than the other Gospels. Another Luke emphasis is on the individual person. While Matthew's parables are about the kingdom, Luke's 19 parables are all about individuals. The lost sheep and the lost shekel, the good Samaritan, the prodigal son, the Pharisee, and the tax collector in the temple, the dishonest manager, the ten servants who received some money to invest, each portray individuals for whom Christ came. While Matthew focuses on all for the group as a whole, Luke says, well, he didn't just come for all of those guys. He came for you individually to seek and to save those that are lost. Luke's gospel puts a good deal of emphasis on prayer, reporting seven times, uh, seven of these prayer times are unique to, oh, sorry, seven times that Jesus prayed, my brain is just, give me a second, <laughs> reporting that Jesus prayed 11 times much more than any other gospel. Seven of these prayer times are unique to Luke. Jesus prayed at his baptism all night before selecting the 12 apostles over the fish and the loaves before feeding, just before announcing his coming, uh, his coming death to the 12 at his transfiguration when the 70 returned from their mission, when the 12 saw Jesus praying before asking him to teach them how to pray and in Gethsemane before his arrest and, of course, his final prayer on the cross where he said, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? Luke also places special emphasis on the worship of praising, rejoicing, and glorifying God because of his greatness. Luke ends with the disciples returning to Jerusalem with great joy, and they continually in the temple praising God. Luke also stresses the role of women more than any other gospel. Can some of the women say, whoop, whoop? He mentions, wow. He mentions uh, 40, women 43 times in Matthew's 
43 times to Matthew's 30 and Mark and John's 19. Jesus lifts up women socially and spiritually. In conclusion, Luke's aim was to ground Theophilus, who was a Gentile convert, uh, in the true historical account of Christ the Savior. He presents Jesus as the Son of God in his perfect humanity. Luke's gospel is the most comprehensive, universal, and individualistic of all the gospel records. He emphasizes forgiveness, worship, prayer, uh, Christ's sympathetic nature, and Jesus' respect for women. Luke includes more about the Holy Spirit and Christ's unique parables than the other Gospels. John. Brother John. This is probably my favorite book in the Gospels. Because there's so much good stuff in it. John is the beloved disciple. Um, he was speaking to Greek-speaking Jews living outside of Israel. And it was written AD 90. So letter B is going to be believe and live. Believe and live. So you'll notice back in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, everything as far as the, the, those few words that I used to describe uh, the book were as Jesus, the son of man, the servant, um, yeah, well, in John, the best way to describe Jesus, I think, is answered in the very first chapter, in the very first verse, where it says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then you skip down, it says, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, so, I would say that it portrays Jesus as the Word of God. So, the Gospel of John is an eyewitness account of Jesus' life and teachings written by someone close to Jesus that he can confidently call himself the beloved disciple. Rather than focusing on what was already written, the disciple focuses on events, discourses, and miraculous signs not found in other Gospels. <clears throat> so we begin with the book of signs, Jesus' pre-existence. Referring to creation in the beginning, John says the Word existed before creation and was the agent through whom the, word, the world was made. Whenever G God speaks, whenever Jesus speaks, creation happens. You and I can speak and nothing happens. We have to put action to our words. But the difference between our words and God's words is His gods have creative power. His words have creative power. Um, John explains that the Word is Jesus, the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, who took on flesh and pitched his tent among us. That's said in chapter 1 and verse 14. Uh, Jesus' mission to the Jews happened chapter 1 through chapter 12. In the last half of chapter 1, Jesus' identity is further revealed through the professions of John the Baptist and Jesus' disciples. Collectively, the confessions of Jesus' first disciples make clear that they saw Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, and the king of Israel, who was predicted by the law of Moses, the prophets, and by John the Baptist. The book of glory, uh, chapters 13 through 21, speaks about Jesus' upper room message. The next five chapters directly anticipate the approaching end of Christ's life and focus on his preparation of the disciples for the next stage in salvation history. By the time of Jesus' last supper, Judah's heart was already uh, set on betraying Jesus, and Jesus already knew that 
the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God and that he was going to go back to God. Jesus, therefore, got up from supper, laid aside his robe, and began washing the disciples' feet. The foot washing is an action lesson that prepared Jesus' disciple for serving one another in such a way that their love and their unity would show the world that they were his disciples. After Jesus sent Judas out in the night, Jesus began to teach those who were his own. Jesus' arrest and trials happened in chapter 18 through 19. Having finished his prayer, Jesus entered into the garden where he was met by Judas, his betrayer, and armed soldiers. <coughs> Peter drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest. He cut his ear off, gone, by, and Jesus picked the ear up, put it back on his head. He rejected the intervention that Peter made and went willingly to be judged by Annas the priest. Next was Jesus' crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, also known as the Passion, uh, chapters 19 through 20. Jesus was then crucified under a sign that read, does anybody know what the sign read? Yeah, I Anybody? What was the sign that was displayed? I don't remember. Ivy? That's part of it. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Through the course of his crucifixion, John recorded a series of prophetic fulfillments. First, the soldier's division of Jesus' clothes was viewed as fulfilling Psalms chapter 22 and 18. Second, Jesus asked for a drink, thereby fulfilling Psalms chapter 22 and 15. After this, Jesus uttered the words, it is finished and died, also written in Psalms. After Jesus' death, the Jews requested that those being crucified have their legs broke um, in order to expedite their death so they could be taken down before the Sabbath, because on the Sabbath you could not do anything. However, because Jesus was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, they pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. These were the last of the prophetic fulfillments. Third, that not one of his bones will be broken, and fourth, that they will... Look at the one that they pierced. Epilogue, chapters 21, verse 1 through 25. A two-verse epilogue verifies that the authenticity of the gospel account, uh, observes of the gospel's account, and observes that while Jesus did many other things, no one could possibly write them all down. If anyone did, does anybody know what it says? If someone wrote down all the things that Jesus did in his three years of ministry, all the books in the world could not contain the things that would be written. In conclusion, John's Gospel makes clear that its record of Jesus' message, uh, messages and his miraculous signs was written that you may believe, and that by believing, by, by, by believing you may have life in his name. While all four Gospels are evangelistic, John's Gospel Recognizes, recognized as the gospel of belief because of its emphasis on knowing, stated 56 times, and believing, stated 98 times, the truth, stated 46 times. In this way, the reader is captivated by the dramatic results of believing the truth about Jesus and confessing, as did Thomas, my Lord and my God. Now on to the book Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles. Luke wrote the book of Acts. He was also writing this to Theophilus. <clears throat> and um, 
It was written A.D. 60 through 62. And this book is about witnessing to the world. And in this book, Jesus is represented through the Holy Ghost and fire. So your letter B is going to be witnessing to the world. So the book of Acts is the second volume written by Luke. 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 Uh, he addresses the gospel to Theophilus, which means lover of God or friend of God. The Acts of the Apostles isn't a survey of the ministry of all 12 uh, disciples. Rather, it is about Peter and Paul. Uh, but in other sense, it's not really about them. It's about what the Holy Spirit did and still does through them and through you. Thus, the book could be titled The Acts of the Holy Spirit rather than The Acts of the Apostles. Witnessing in Jerusalem, chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 8 and 3. The birth of the church at Pentecost. Does anybody know what Pentecost is? Besides religion. It is a celebration. A Jewish festival. Uh, following the resurrection, the reason, by the way, that we are called Pentecostal is because we believe that salvation lies in what happened on the day of Pentecost or the festival of Pentecost, which we will talk about here in just a second. Following the resurrection, Jesus appeared to the disciples for 40 days, commissioning the disciples to be witnesses from Jerusalem uh, to the ends of the earth. After Christ's ascension, the disciples and 120 people received the baptism of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, which is a Jewish feast held 50 days after Passover. As a result of Peter's preaching, 3,000 people were saved and baptized, and the New Testament church was launched. Does anybody know what all 120 people and also what all 3,000 people did whenever they received the gift of the Holy Ghost? The Bible says they all spoke in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Every single person recorded an act that got the Holy Ghost also spoke in another tongue. Uh, chapter 3 through chapter 8 speaks on the expansion of the church in Jerusalem. I want to key in on this. The church, and it's obvious through the book of Acts, was not meant to just be a one-time or a one-place thing. Throughout the entire book of Acts and on into Romans, into 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Philippians, everything, the church is constantly expanding and growing larger. In fact, the entire New Testament after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is all about growing the church. Because God wants as many people as he can to be in his kingdom whenever it comes to earth. So once the church was established, Luke records how the Jerusalem church grew. The author meticulously records the number of converts, which immediately began multiplying by the thousands. <clears throat> Witnessing in Judea and Samaria, chapter 8 through chapter 12. This is uh, the ministry of Philip. After the... Uh, martyrdom of Stephen, Philip, and one of the seven original deacons went to Samaria preaching in the gospel with great power and success. In response to the Samaritans' conversions, Peter and John came from Jerusalem to lay hands on the new believers and imparted the Holy Spirit to them, uh, demonstrating continually between the Jewish and Samaritan believers. And guess what? Every single person that they laid hands on and got the Holy Ghost did. The Bible says they all spoke in tongues. Later, Philip was led of the Spirit to witness to the Ethiopian, Ethiopian eunuch 
on the road to Garza. Uh, does anybody know that story about Philip and the eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch? It's a pretty amazing story. Uh, so what happened was is he was on his way to, I think, Jerusalem to preach, and Holy Ghost spoke to him and said, I want you to go to this road uh, to Garza. And whenever he got there, there was this Ethiopian eunuch at this road, and the Bible says that he was reading uh, the book of Isaiah, and he didn't understand it. And Philip saw him reading it, and he asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And what it was actually that he was reading was the prophecy of Jesus Christ that's recorded in the book of Isaiah. Um, and what Philip did was he hopped up on this guy's cart that he was on, uh, and he began to preach. To, the Bible says he preached to him Jesus, and he preached to him about the crucifixion, about all that happened. And whenever he began to preach to him, the Ethiopian man said, well, here is water, because Philip had just talked to him about being baptized in Jesus' name and about getting the Holy Ghost. The eunuch said, well, here's water. What does hinder me to be baptized? So Philip said, nothing. Baptize him in Jesus' name. And the Bible says immediately after he was baptized, he was transported through the Spirit. He didn't have to walk. He didn't have to get on a horse. But he was transported through the Spirit back to Jerusalem where he was going to in the first place to continue preaching the gospel. Pretty awesome story if you ask me. And what's even greater than that is after Philip, uh, is that after the eunuch was baptized, he was returned to Ethiopia. That's where he was going, not to Jerusalem. Um, he was returned to Ethiopia, and this is the he's credited with spreading the gospel into Africa at that time. So many believe that that is how Christianity started in Africa, was his transfiguration, whatever that word, transportation from uh, the road to Garza back to Ethiopia, where he could continue to spread the gospel. Does anybody know what Paul's original name was? Come on, people. I know this. Saul. His name was Saul. So the conversion of Paul at the time being Saul. A decisive event in the history of Christianity took place when Saul, later called Paul, a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, was converted to Christ on the road to Damascus. He was blinded by a vision of the risen Christ immediately. That would be crazy. You just can't see nothing, and then all of a sudden you see Jesus rising. That's pretty crazy. Uh, Saul was later healed and baptized by a disciple named Ananias. Uh, immediately, the converted Saul became a bold proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus, the prophesied Messiah. Saul would eventually exchange his Jewish name for the Greek-Roman name Paul as he expanded his ministry to the Gentiles. And Paul would go on to write most of the New Testament. The ministry of Peter... Uh, the next major events in history of Christianity include Peter's ministry to the Jews in Syrian Antioch, his vision at Joppa, and the witness to uh, Cornelius, which resulted in the conversion of the first Gentiles, a situation in which, again, all that received the Holy Ghost and were converted to Christianity. The Bible says that everyone in the house spoke in tongues. These chapters contain the accounts of Christianity's first break with Jewish dietary laws, social customs, and the inclusion of Gentiles. Remember that before Gentile or before Jesus came, before all of that, salvation was only supposedly meant for the Jews. Only Jews could be saved. 
whenever Jesus came, he tore that veil. And not only could Jews go to God, not only could, could practicing Jews go to God for salvation, but it was meant for anyone, Gentiles. So unless you're a Jew, I would be pretty thankful for that because that means that you and I can be saved. So the next section, chapter 13 through 28, is about witnessing to the uttermost, uttermost parts of the earth. Paul's first missionary journey. Next, the church advanced to Cyprus and Asia Minor as Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark were sent out as missionaries from the church to church at Antioch in Syria. While they were ministering in Cy Cyprus, a Jewish magician was struck blind. A Roman uh, pro proconsul was converted, and Saul's name was changed to Paul. Uh, Jerusalem Council, chapter 15, verse 1 through 35. A serious disagreement arose at Antioch as to whether the, the new Gentile converts needed to be circumcised. The church sent Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to report on their Gentile mission and to settle the issue with the apostles. The Jer Jerusalem Council was held in AD 49, where it determined that Gentiles were not required to be circumcised and that both Jews and Gentiles were saved by grace through faith alone, not by the act of circumcision. Paul's second missionary journey, upon returning from Jerusalem, Paul uh, and Barnabas decided to visit the converts from their first journey. However, a disagreement arose at overtaking John Mark. Along, ultimately, Barnabas took Mark and returned to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and took the overland route through Syria and Sicilia to southern Galatia. And in this time, Paul and Silas were put in prison. What happened when Paul and Silas began to praise? Yeah. Oh, the bands were loose. Paul's third missionary journey. Shortly after arriving back in Antioch, Paul begins his third missionary journey, retracing the steps of his second journey until he came again to Ephesus. Uh, Paul's evangelistic ministry was so successful among the Gentiles that a public demonstration broke out in the arena led by silversmith idol makers whose business losses were extensive because of the great number of Christian converts. People converted to Christianity and stopped buying idols. So that put some folks out of a job. Paul's arrest, imprisonment, and voyage to Rome. At Jerusalem, Paul was arrested by Jewish authorities, and he defended himself before Sanhedrin. Uh, tensions were so high, the Roman authority transferred Paul to Felix, uh, the governor of Caesarea. During his two years at Caesarea, Paul presented his case before Felix, Festus, and Herod, and Agrippa, or Herod Agrippa. In the meantime, being a Rome citizen, Paul appealed to, the, to Caesar and was sent back to Rome. However, the voyage ended with, with a shipwreck off the island of Malta before Paul was finally placed under house arrest in Rome where he continued the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In conclusion, the book of Acts begins with Peter preaching the gospel in Jerusalem, the metropolitan center of Judaism. It ends with Paul preaching the gospel in Rome, the metropolitan center of the Roman Empire and the Gentile world. Interestingly, there is no confusion or conclusion to the Acts of the Apostles. That's because they go on to this very day. They haven't stopped. 
Paul welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with boldness and without hindrance. Luke does not conclude with a sermon, nor is there a benediction or signature by Luke. The author simply ends by bringing the reader to the latest news in the ongoing ministry of the risen Savior through the Holy Spirit. And it is continued to this very day. And I'm going to pause just for a minute to go to some personal notes that I make. I want to key in on some individual scriptures recorded in the Gospels and a couple scriptures that we will, uh, and books that we will talk about here in just a moment. I'm going to try to get through this real quick so we can keep going. So Luke chapter 6, verses 8 through 11, it says, But he knew their thoughts and said to the man which had a withered hand, Rise up, stand forth in the midst, and he rose and stood forth. So Jesus, this is on the Sabbath day, Jesus has been preaching and teaching on the Sabbath, and he sees a man with a withered hand, and um, just as always, there were Pharisees and scribes there watching what Jesus was doing, and you have to understand that it was considered to be sinful to do any amount of work on the Sabbath day. So whenever Jesus saw this man, he said, rise up and stand forth in the midst, and the man arose and stood forth. Jesus said unto them, speaking about the Pharisees, I will ask you one thing, is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy it? And looking round about upon all of them, he said to the man, stretch stretch forth thy hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. So Jesus healed this man's hand. He did work on the Sabbath day. And the Bible says that they were all filled with madness, the ones that saw him, and communed with one, another, one with another what they might do to Jesus. But I like how the New Living Translation states it. He says they begin to discuss what they might do with Jesus. So I want to ask you the same question they were asking each other. What might we do with Jesus? I believe that Paul answers this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23 where he says, for Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But Paul answers this question very plainly, and I feel the Holy Ghost as I'm beginning to say this. He says, remember, we're asking, what might we do with Jesus? Well, Paul gives you the answer. He said, but we preach Christ crucified, and to the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. So what Paul was saying is, you want to know what to do with Jesus? I'll tell you Jewish scribes and Pharisees. I'll tell you Greeks, don't seek after wisdom. Don't look for a sign, but preach him. Don't don't crucify him. Don't don't hurt him, but preach Jesus. He's already been crucified once. Now preach about him. Talk about him. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6 says, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place there for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there may you be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. And it was then that Thomas asked Jesus, he said, We don't know where you go, and how can we know the way if we don't know where you go? But Jesus answered and said to him, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So when you preach about him, Tell them that he is the way, he's the truth, and the life. There are people that go throughout their lives, they walk from day to day wondering, what is the way that I should go? Is the life I'm living really the true life I should be living? Is, this, is, this, is working a job 9 to 5 really what I should be doing? 
And the answer to them should be, no, let me preach to you about a man named Jesus who said that he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. It's funny to me that though there are, we talked about many differences that are recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's many differences in how they spoke. There's, there's different miracles that were individually recorded in each book, but the one thing that remained the same was the Great Commission that Jesus spoke about. The Great Commission that was recorded in Matthew 28, 19 that said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. In Luke chapter 24, it says, And they said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. Jesus is speaking about the prophecy that was given in the book of Psalms and in the book of Isaiah. And he goes on and says, And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and that you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father unto you, but tarry ye here in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. What he's speaking about is the Holy Ghost that was going to come down in the book of Acts. So even in Luke and, and also in Mark and in, in the book of John, the Great Commission is still given. Though there are things that are different, one thing remains the same, and that is God's calling for us to go ye therefore and teach the Gospels, to baptize people, to win souls, to save people. And now I just want to speak for a moment on the book of Acts. Many people, it, it's been asked to me multiple times, why is it that Pentecostals, apostolic Pentecostals, are so dead set on the book of Acts? Well, I want to remind you of what happened in Matthew chapter 16 to the man that we know as the preacher uh, in the book of Acts named Peter. The Bible said that he, it was revealed unto him who Jesus Christ was, that he was the Son of God, that he was God robed in flesh. And because of this revelation, and maybe not just because of the revelation, but because of Peter's confidence in stating and proclaiming this revelation, the Bible says that Jesus gave Peter the keys to the kingdom. He didn't give it to Matthew. He didn't give it to Mark. He didn't give it to Luke. He didn't give it to John. He didn't give it to anybody but Peter. He said, Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 19. And whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed on in heaven. So whenever people come to me and ask me, well, the Bible says that all you have to do is believe and you shall be saved. Well, yeah, John said that, but John didn't have the keys. Peter had the keys. And Peter said in Acts chapter 238, when they were pricked in their heart, they said, what are we going to do? We just killed the man that was sent here to save us. What are we going to do? How are we going to be saved? Peter, the man that God gave the keys to the kingdom, stood up among all these people. And he says, you have to repent. You have to be baptized. And you have to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And he continued on and said, for this is a promise. And to you, your children, and all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So the book of Acts is a, it's a story. It is, it is Acts that happened whenever the Spirit was poured out on individuals. And I just want to remind you and I want to inform you that the reason the book of Acts is so important is because, number one, it records those keys. Peter, he stood up in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, and he says, guess what? I got the keys that you're looking for. The question presented itself whenever all the ones that were listening said, what shall we do to be saved? Where are the keys to the kingdom? Peter said, I know what that is. Jesus gave these to me not too long ago whenever I got a revelation of who he is. I got those keys, so let me give them to you. You got to repent. You have to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ 
for the remission of sins. And then you're going to receive something. It's going to be something that's greater than anything you've ever received ever in your life. And that's called the Holy Ghost. And the, the Bible records in the book of Acts, and I've mentioned it throughout my lesson today, that every single time someone received the gift of the Holy Ghost. Remember, this was the first time the gift of the Holy Ghost had been poured out in this way ever in the history of mankind. Every single time it's recorded that someone receives the gift of the Holy Ghost, not only in Acts, but in every book following Acts, they also spoke in another tongue. So I want you to take from this, and we're going to continue on in the next books, but the next books are literally a preaching and teaching of the gospel. After the book of Acts, well, after the book of John, everything recorded after that besides Revelations is, is books about the disciples, the apostles going into the world and teaching the gospel. They are fulfilling the, the thing that Jesus told them to do. They are fulfilling the command that Jesus made to them, the great commission to go ye therefore into all the nations and teach them. Baptize them in the name of Jesus Christ, the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, all of which is named is Jesus Christ. So I want to give you all that same great commission after you leave this building. I know it's been preached about almost every single service. Brother Dylan Morgan has talked about it. Pastor talked about it last uh, our last TSM event. I want to give you that same great commission. When you leave here, take the things you've learned. Take this New Testament message. Take these gospels and teach them unto all nations. Because the, the book of Acts never ended. I just told you that. It never ended because the book of Acts is continuing every single day. And will continue until Jesus comes back. And now, we're going to go to the book of Romans. Paul wrote the book of Romans. He wrote to the believers at Rome. And he wrote in the winter of A.D. 56 through 57. In the book of Romans, so we talked about, we, we've explained the gospel, the story of the gospels. We have explained the, the, the spirit that came after the Gospels. But now Paul is going to talk about the power that comes through the spirit in the Gospels. So your, your letter B is going to be the power of the Gospel. The teaching of Romans is not only crucial for Christian theology, but the greatest revivals and reformations throughout the history of Christianity have resulted from an increased understanding an application of the teaching of this epistle. How can a person be rightly related to the God who created the universe and will someday righteously judge all people? All are condemned by sin with no hope of reconciliation with God on their own. Paul says the answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that thing that every one of you should be preaching about. The Christian gospel is the universal message of God's saving grace through faith in Christ. Paul introduces himself to the Romans as a slave of Jesus Christ or a servant of Jesus Christ. He is one who was sent and he was set apart to preach, to evangelize, and to focus the gospel, uh, focus his teachings not on Paul himself and what God had done through Paul, but mainly on Christ and what the gospel means for everyone else. Paul wants to visit the, Rome, uh, the Roman believers soon and list some of his reasons uh, he is longing to see them. Before moving into his doctrinal presentation, Paul states that the theme of his letter uh, in two ways. The gospel is the power of God that leads to salvation. 
Whatever he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power. Uh, and then he speaks about the righteousness of God by faith is revealed in the gospel. So uh, he speaks on doctrine from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 11, verse 36. Uh, condemnation, the revelation of God's wrath. Paul begins the doctrinal portion of his epistle by describing the revelation of God's wrath on all mankind. Paul shows that the whole world is under sin and therefore guilty before God. All are accountable and no one can be justified by his own good works, with or without the law. Justification, the imputation of God's righteousness, the answer to mankind's dilemma of all being sinners and falling short of the grace of God is that God's righteousness is revealed to man through the gospel, bringing salvation by faith. Paul describes first the imputation of God's righteousness to man, justification, and second the impartation of God's righteousness in and through man, or sanctification. <clears throat> sanctification, the impartation of God's holiness. This leads Paul into the second aspect of salvation, sanctification, the impartation of God's righteousness in and through the believer to conform him progressively to the image of Jesus Christ. Holiness is the constant progression towards the image of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ embodied everything that was holy. And God stated this way, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Vindication, Israel's future redemption. Paul returned to the question of Israel in order to vindicate God's righteousness in his dealing with the Jews. He shows that God's present rejection of Israel for their unbelief is not inconsistent with God's promises to them. God never promised that all the physical descendants of Abraham would be saved. Israel is guilty for rejecting God's righteousness by faith or Jesus and trying to instead establish their own righteousness through the law that was given. Duties. Uh, he speaks about duties. Number one, towards the brothers. Believers must live in, live in humility and love toward one another uh, in the assembly. They are to use their spiritual gifts in accordance with the ministry God has assigned them to. Toward the government, uh, duties towards the government, believers need to be in subjection to their government because its authority ultimately comes from God and God has designed civil government to punish evil and reward good. He gives us duties towards the weak and the strong. The weak and the strong must accept each other since both are accepted by God, both belong to God, and both will be judged by God. The strong believer should not cause the weak believer to stumble in his life, but rather to be concerned for him and do what leads to peace and edification. Remember, if you are a strong saint, don't be talking about the weak ones. Help them. Edify them. Build them up. Get them to be on the same level as you are. And lastly, the strong believer needs to help the weak believer, just as I just said. Just as Christ did not live to please himself, but took upon himself the sins of the world. Both the weak and strong should accept one another, just as Christ accepted both Jews and Gentiles in the church of God's glory. <clears throat> Paul, in his conclusion, revisits his motivation for writing the letter. God has given him the ministry of apostle to the Gentiles, and he has preached the gospel to Gentiles all the way from Jerusalem to Illyricum. Il uh, place northwest of Greece. In conclusion, the epistle to the Romans is Paul's 
theological and practical work. He believed God wanted him to take the gospel westward beyond Rome, beginning at Spain, but he needed the support of the Roman church to do this. Therefore, Paul threw everything he had into this letter, an epistle is a letter, in case you didn't know, to convince the believers at the center of the Roman Empire that they could trust him, his goals, and his preaching. Paul said that he was not ashamed for the gospel. In fact, he was so unashamed for the gospel that eventually Paul gave his life for it. So, I'm going to stop there, but I want to take a moment and just pray. And just as we did a, a couple of nights ago to the young people that were there, let's pray like we have that power that God has given us. Uh, we have three minutes left in the class, so I just want to pray that God will give us a fresh revelation, that the words that I've spoken today would not just be, uh, that they wouldn't just fall on deaf ears, but that they would hit your head so you would remember them, that, that they would go into your heart. So let's pray right now. God, we thank you for this opportunity to come before you. God, we thank you, Lord, for this great book, this, this word that you've given us that God literally defines and encompasses everything you are. Without your word, God, we would be lost. There would be no explanation. There would be no light into our lamp into our path. There would be no light into our feet. There would be nothing that we could do to be saved. But through your word, all can come to salvation. And God, I'm thankful for that. Lord, I'm asking right now that you would begin to, right now in this room, give us a divine revelation of this gospel. Don't let us just read about it. Don't let us just experience it, but let us understand what your gospel is, what your intentions were from all the way from beginning of Genesis to the ending of Revelation. There was one theme, and that theme was simply redemption, because all have fallen in fallen short of your grace and your glory. So God, we ask that we would get a revelation of this salvation message, that through this revelation we would be begin to speak and we would begin to preach and be witnesses unto every single person we come in contact with. Lord, once again, I just want to thank you for bringing us here together. I want to thank you for giving us the power that it takes. The Bible says that after you receive the Holy Ghost that you will receive power that you're going to be witnesses. And God, I want that power, and I don't want to misuse that power, but I want to use it to be a witness of your glory and of your greatness. Lord, help us to take this message. Help us to preach it. Give us the words to speak. In every situation, let us be witnesses of your greatness and of your gospel and of your plan. And Lord, we'll be careful to give you all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise in Jesus' name, amen. Remember to give your tithes and your offerings either online or here before you leave the class. Thank you all once again for coming. And I, I want to challenge you to continue to pray uh, that God will reveal all these things that we've been learning over the past few weeks to you. Use these guides as a guide whenever you're studying the Bible. If you don't know exactly what you're reading, that's what these are for. Next week, we're going to try to continue on with this lesson and finish up the majority of the New Testament.